Welcome to The Point. I'm Indy Todd. We're on the road today showing our love of libraries. Today we visit the Woods Hole Library and the Woods Hole Historical Museum. We'll chat with Library Director Kelly Porter and Museum Director Sally Pacini. But first, we take a tour of the Marine Biological Laboratory and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution Library, which is right down the street. Last week, I stopped in and spoke with Jennifer Walton, the director of the MBL Huey Library. Talk a little bit about the importance of the library. So we're the library for the scientific institutions in Woods Hole. So for MBL, Huey, there's a USGS here in Woods Hole, for the Woodwell Climate Research Center, and for SEA. Um, and so the importance of the library is that we really serve the needs of the scientists at all of those institutions and try to get them the resources that they need to be able to do their important research. All right, show me around. Okay. So in the lobby, we have an exhibit that talks a bit about the um, history of Wittol, of the history of MBL in particular, and some of mostly focusing on some of the people who have been here and some of the work that they have done, but also the organisms that they studied with and the, some of the instruments that they would use. So um, on this wall here, there's a picture of MBL the first summer in 1888. So they had decided in February that they were actually going to have the MBL that summer. So they quickly put up a two-story wooden building and, um, and, and started inviting researchers to, to come here. The first summer at MBL, there were, there were eight students, four of them were women, and there were seven researchers, and four of them were women. And that was one of the important things about the founding of MBL, was that it was a place for both men and women to be able to come and do their science in the summer. Mostly people who were teaching in colleges or high school teachers were who were in those courses and re doing their research here. Okay, so then uh, in uh, 1896, 1899, there was the report Cornelia Clapp was the first official report on the library, right? And she had been a student, right, in 1888 and returned as an investigator and then became the first woman trustee in 1910. Absolutely, and she's in that picture from, from 1888, but we also have um, the, the auditorium downstairs is named for, for Cornelia Clapp, and not she was the first person to arrive at MBL that first summer, so she came here. Nobody else was here. I mean, she, did, she had to find her own place to live and had to figure out what was going on because they hadn't really even opened when she arrived that first summer here in July. So she was absolutely the absolute first person. So in this case over here, this is Thomas Hunt Morgan's Nobel Prize. Uh, so Morgan, he won the Nobel Prize for his work that he did with the fruit flies, with Drosophila, um, and tying the eye color, the heredity of the eye color to the chromosomes. So it's an early Nobel Prize for genetics. Um, but the reason, and he did most of that work at Columbia, but he started coming to uh, Woods Hole in, this, in 1888 when he was a grad student at Johns Hopkins. He actually first started coming to the fisheries and then moved over here to MBL. He came to MBL for most of the summers for the rest of his life, came here doing research on, we know he published on more than 30 different organisms, so lots of, you know, lots of different questions that he was pursuing, but he started out as a, a student in embryology, and because his family had that long connection to Woods Hole, that's why we have his Nobel Prize here. So he won in, in 1933, that's the actual gold medal that we have here in the case, and we also have the, the diploma and um, a microscope that he, that he used as well. 
Another um, Nobel Prize winner who was here at MBL for a long time was Albert St. Georgie. And so we have a bust of St. Georgie, and he's very quotable kind of person. And so we have some of his quotes on the wall over here. Um, probably one of his most famous is, discovery consists of seeing what everybody has seen and thinking what nobody has thought. And that really is a driving idea behind MBL. We also have um, Shunya Inouye's, one of his polarized light microscopes here. This one's from about 1970. Um, and Shinya was using, he started using polarized light in Japan, when he was working in Japan in the 1940s. Um, and the thing about using the, the polarized light with the microscope is it allows you to highlight different parts of a cell uh, without having to at that time fix or stain the cell so you could watch a living organism develop through the microscope and just use the light to pick up different and contrast different parts of it. How many people who are not scientists come into this library just to explore some of these exhibits? Well, the, the MBL tours come through here every day, but then we, um, people also are welcome to come and, and look at the exhibit as, as well. Um, and it just tells a nice history of Woods Hole and of MBL. All right, what about the rare books room? What are some of the highlights you have there? So um, the oldest book in our collection is from 1554, and that one, and we have one from 1560, are early catalogs um, of, of marine organisms. And so the oldest book that we have is um, by Rondelet, and he cataloged all of the marine and aquatic organisms of France which sounds pretty specific, but it actually was the best catalog of European marine organisms for about 200 years. And so it really was a, a, an important scientific work. And then the book we have from 1560 was put together by a Swiss physician whose name was Conrad Gessner, and his goal was to catalog all organisms on Earth. And so he really, he did a lot of this through correspondence and going to libraries and finding references to organisms. And what makes Gessner's work so um, fun to look at is that he really didn't do much curating. If something had been described, he includes it in his volume and there's a woodcut illustration to go along with it. So there are lots of, there are things that are very technical and, and, and very scientific, and then there are also things that are more sort of fanciful and monsters and things like that, which make it a fun book as well. I would imagine you must have some rules there in the rare books room because you don't want to keep touching these things, right? So, so what are the rules for folks who want to look at this stuff? Well, um, we do, you know, for people who, our rare books collection is really for people with scientific inquiry who want to go back and see that first reference to something or see the way that it was described. Um, the book, many of the books have been digitized, but sometimes you actually need to go and, and look at the illustration in the book to really be able to see the detail and really be able to see what the author was trying to portray with that detail. So that's generally what, what we use the, the rare books for. Although we do, when students come through, we often um, have them come and, and look at the rare books as well because it's great to get that sense of history. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Biodiversity Heritage Library. So we, we digitized our books mainly with the Biodiversity Heritage Library, and it was a group of, when, when we first started, it was a group of libraries in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, that included the Smithsonian and the um, Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard and the, museum, and the Botany Library there, um, and it's continued to grow, and so now it, it encompasses libraries from around the world, but the idea is to 
digitize the, um, the, the scientific works. And mainly it is so that, that researchers can go back and they can look at where an organism was found at a certain point in time and the information there. I mean, things have gone extinct, but now you have, and you might have a, um, you, you might have a specimen in a museum, but also being able to go back and read about all of the instances where that organism was found over time and the descriptions, and then also maybe some of the illustrations that were made of it can really help for people who are studying that. Maybe the range of where an organism is found has changed a lot with climate change, and so you, you're able to reflect that as well in just being able to go back to those earlier references. Is the Encyclopedia Life part of that project part of that? So yeah, the Biodiversity Heritage Library was originally conceived of to support the Encyclopedia of Life, so that there would be references to the organisms that were being described in the Encyclopedia of Life, but it really, as a project, has taken on um, and, and become a big project of its own and, and gone in different directions and includes you know, many more libraries now. So um, it started out that way, but it really has grown. And it's a, one of the wonderful things about the Biodiversity Heritage Library as well, I think, is that it's a project that connects these libraries from around the world. And we started you know, long before COVID when it became more common to participate in projects with colleagues that maybe you were never meeting in person, but that is, that's the way this project has always been. And when we started out with having calls, and but just the connections that have built in the libraries working together on, on this project from around the world is one of the really great things about it. So um, do you have, the, you know, Woods Hole with its reputation as this science mecca around the world, do you get a lot of visitors from elsewhere that come in, scientists that want to come in and study here? We do. I mean, it, it traditionally, scientists would come in the summer to be able to use the library because the collection here was so in incredible. Um, there were things like during the Second World War, the journals that were coming from countries that we were at war with and, and the Axis powers, we had those journals sent to Switzerland where they waited until the end of the war and then we had them here. MBL did that and the Smithsonian did that. Um, but it also meant that we had long, we had complete runs of things and for um, libraries, you know, in parts of the world where the library may have been destroyed, we had that complete run as well. Now that things have been digitized, that isn't quite so important, but every summer we do have, you know, a few researchers who, who come because what they need is here in the stacks and they can actually see those original volumes. All right, because scientists rely on this library for their research, you need to have the latest on scientific papers, right? So is that a challenge? Oh, it's absolutely a challenge. So um, when MBL was founded in 1888, Charles Whitman, who was the first director, said, we need to have a library like you'd have in a college or a university, and we need to collect everything in science. And of course, he was really just referring to European publications, but at that time, you could almost do it. Now there's no way that we could subscribe to all of the scientific literature out there. And so even though we support all of those organizations and we are we also are supported by the institutions in Woods Hole. Um, we certainly can't afford to subscribe to everything. So we have connections with libraries. We're part of the Boston Library Consortium, which is really around New England. A lot of the big colleges and universities are, are a part of that. We also um, 
are connected to marine science libraries around the world. So for more sort of unique things or hard to find things, we can get them through those channels. Um, but it's definitely, it's always a challenge to be able to get the scientists everything that they need here in Woods Hole. So you have a scientist who comes in and goes, hey, I really need you know this from this publication. If you don't have it, are you likely able to get it? Yes, so through interlibrary loan, we're, we're generally able to get almost anything that somebody that somebody needs. Um, sometimes, you know, if it's a thesis from another country, that can be hard to get, but generally what we can, and it, our turnaround time t it tends to be pretty fast. So in a couple of days or some, often less than 24 hours if it's something that's not really really hard to get. That's Jen Walton, the director of the MBL Huey Library. Coming up after a break, we settle in here at the Woods Hole Library. Stay with us. You're listening to The Point. We are live at the Woods Hole Library today. Joining me is the library director, Kelly Porter. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Mindy. So nice I, to have you here with us today. The long commute from next door. <laughs> we are right next door. CAI is right next door to the library. And for, for people who haven't been in Woods Hole, if you've been here, you this library stands out. It's this beautiful stone building. And it's funny because you're right at the end of Woods Hole Road, and we start Water Street. Yes, yes. <laughs> we're sort of, both of our buildings are sort of at the gateway to the village, as it were. And, you know, many people who call and ask, you know, where is the library? I say, well, you know, you come down to Woods Hole. If you turn left, you're going to the steamship. If you turn right, you're right at the library. So yeah. you kind of can't miss us. Tell us a little bit about the building. Yeah, so the, our building, the library itself was founded in 1910 and kind of bopped around the village for a few years until our building was built in 1913. And right now we're sitting in the front room of the library that is part of the original building. Um, this big front room and a little bit back beyond that was all the original building. And then we had a, a couple expansions over the years in the 60s. They sort of bumped it back a little bit. And then in the late 80s, we added on uh, the side where we have our children's room and a meeting room underneath it. Um, but the original part here is 1913. And it's just a very unique building. Like you said, it's field stone. Um, we don't know a lot about who built it or anything like that, but we do assume that the stones must have been local. Um, and it's we we just love it here. Yeah. It's very cozy. It's, it's one of the you know we started this library series last month. We started with Sturgis Library. You're our second library. We're trying to visit a library a month because um, libraries are so important to communities. And I think it's more than just checking out books. There's and what I have found just in some of the research is not only do we have this amazing variety of architecture looking at the buildings, but there's also this variety of what libraries offer. Yes. And everybody has sort of the unique things about them. And one of the unique things here at the Woods Hole Library is the collection of periodicals. Yes. So talk about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that libraries just in general do so well is respond to their communities and what they can do to serve their community. And here in Woods Hole, the people that use our library, um, they we tend to have a very strong group of crafters and people who are sort of looking for, um, you know, more interesting, uh, offbeat things to read. And uh, a number of years ago, we were looking at our periodical collection, which, you know, included things like Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated that you would find just anywhere. And we thought, you know, how could we make this really serve our community and what they would want? 
And it started off with a couple of uh, knitting magazines. There's a, one out of Finland called Len. And um, there's a sort of crafty homestead lifestyle magazine called Taproot. That uh, Those were some of the first ones that we subscribed to and really got a fabulous response from our patrons. And now we've just decided, you know, let's keep going with this. And we try to find magazines that might not be easy to get here in the United States or even um, you, you might not want to spend, you know, $30 on an issue of just one magazine. And so it's a perfect application of library funds that we can subscribe to this and share it. And we we get re requests from all over clams. We've even had uh, requests from out of state for, uh, d you know, sending a scan of a pattern or an article. <laughs> and so it's it's really great to see that collection used. And it's interesting that you can do that because obviously there are more, there's more than one library in the town of Falmouth. So, yes. So you can get some of those more common periodicals at the other libraries. Absolutely. I mean, the beauty of the CLAMS system with all of our CAPE libraries being connected is that each library can have their own little community charm and their sort of niche niche collection. And it's so easily easily shared among all of our libraries. And it lets us, you know, retain our sort of small character, but completely be viable as, you know, as a library that we can get anything for anybody that they would want to read. You know, of course, we couldn't ever stock everything, <laughs> everything on <yeah>. our shelves. <laughs> and so we, you know, having a consortium like Clams and then beyond that, the state of Massachusetts really does a fabulous job with connecting libraries with interlibrary loan and uh, it's it's we're very fortunate to to have that uh, that's right we're at the Woods Hole Library this morning but uh, if you have a shout out for your library you'd like to share with us 866-999-4626 is a number it's 866-999-4626 our email address is the point at capeandislands.org tell us a little bit about the children's library yeah so we have a wonderfully cozy little children's room um we really pride ourselves on our children's collection as well that you know of course we have all the new books that the kids want but we have a really great collection of older children's books uh, that, you know, people who return to Woods Hole time after time, they'll come in and they'll look for that, you know, <laughs> specific copy of The Wizard of Oz that they read as a kid. And it's, you know, oftentimes it's still there. Uh, and, you know, we, we try to keep some of those really great classics that, I mean, not only the classics that every library would have, but some of the older books that, um, you know, people remember reading here when they were children. Yeah. And then we also have, uh, we, this, we were doing this before the pandemic, but it really uh, ramped up with doing, you know, take home crafts and things like that during the pandemic. Um, and now we have a really strong uh, craft program where we've got a good after school group of kids. Uh, right now it happens to be Wednesdays after school. Uh, we have a good group that comes in and a librarian helps them with uh, weekly crafts. And then we always have something set up in the kids' room for kids to work on. I love watching, you know, the... the preschool around the corner yes my my window looks down here onto the library so I see them coming in they're all holding onto that little, the little rope, rope. so cute yep so yeah. we have bi-weekly <laughs> visits from the Woods Hole Daycare Co-op and we love having the kids come in 
and uh, we'll read stories to them. And then oftentimes uh, after school, the kids will come back with their parent or grandparent or whatever because they want to show them the library. And it's just, it's great. So this library, like many, very community oriented. You mentioned the, the knitting articles, but you have knitting groups and community crafts. And so how how is your programming determined? Is it is it um, the people who come in and say, hey, we'd like this or, or the combination? How do you decide? Yeah, it's it's often that. It's people coming in and saying, you know, I would love to have a group to knit or craft with on in the evening. And so we say, hey, well, we're open Monday nights, so let's set up a, a group. And right now, that's exactly what we have on Monday evenings. Um, we also have we're very lucky that we have so many patrons who, you know, we do um, things like winter travel talks and we'll have patrons who will come in and say, oh, you know, I just took this amazing trip and I'd love to come in and talk about it and show some pictures. And so at the beginning of March, for example, we have a travel talk about uh, going to Africa, uh, some patrons that went there and they're going to share their, their pictures and their experience. Um, and it's just really a, trying to be responsive to what people are interested in asking for. And then again, the f we're fortunate that we have people that come in and offer to do mm. these great programs for us. And as far as author talks, um, are they, is that tough to do or not? So um, well, we, uh, we were talking just before we went on air about how we're so fortunate that we have a lot of amazing local authors. Um, and so often, again, it will be that we have an author who happens to be a library user and, uh, you know, they'll have a book coming out and we'll say, hey, you know, it would be great if you gave a talk at the library. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really been kind of nice that, uh, again, we're responding to what our community is interested in and what they're doing and really trying to help showcase what yeah. our we had a, a during the pandemic a lot of that was happening on zoom yes so are you continuing that is it in person and zoom sort yes. of a hybrid thing yes actually a new thing that we've subscribed to and there's a number of other cape libraries that are doing it um the service is called the library speakers consortium and it's actually a nationwide virtual author talk series uh, we are so we subscribe to it. Our patrons would access it through our website, and it's usually about three authors a month. Ooh. It's all online. You can watch it live, or you can watch it pre-recorded, and just a really wide variety of authors. We've had um, Geraldine Brooks. We had Bonnie Garmus, um, who wrote Lessons in Chemistry, which was just like the hottest right. book for the yeah. last couple <laughs> years. Um, and then there's nonfiction. Um, so that has been an amazing addition and it's something that is so fascinating because before the pandemic I I never would have thought uh, our patrons would have been interested in just sitting and watching you know a computer yeah. um, and they absolutely are now and I think because people are so comfortable with the technology and uh, how great that we can see these amazing authors from our couch whenever know, we right? want. <laughs> All right, so this is a small library and I know um, budgets are always tight no matter where you are. So let's talk a little bit about some of the fundraisers you do. You just had the fabric sale. Yes. And I'm amazed <laughs> at how popular that is. Holy cow. It was astounding. Yes, so we are a privately funded public library, which means we get uh, a little over 10% of our operating budget from the town but everything else we need to fundraise for. And so 
a lot of that comes from we have membership and I tell people it's much like the NPR model where <laughs> you don't have to pay to use us, but we really appreciate when you support us by being a member. Uh, and then we fundraise. Uh, so it's turned out in the past uh, 10 years or so, we've we now have three major fundraisers every year. Uh, like you said, we just had our big fabric and fiber sale, which is a complete bonanza of people donate their unwanted fabrics, notions, yarns, and we sell it all on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, it started because there we used to have a fabric store here in Falmouth called the Fabric Corner, right. and it burned down, unfortunately. Uh, and they always would have a Super Bowl Sunday sale. And so again, sort of responding to our community, somebody said, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if the library could do something on Super Bowl Sunday? We said, sure, let's do it. And so that's just grown and grown. And that is a really fabulous fundraiser. And uh, it really just continues our mission, too, of reusing things, keeping things out of the waste stream, uh, pulling the community together, uh, the not only the shoppers that come to this, but the troop of volunteers that uh, help make this happen is amazing. And then, so up next, you'll have your annual plant sale we'll in have, May. Yes, our plant and, sale. And that plants come from folks in the community? Absolutely, the community? yes. So a lot of the plants are things that people have dug out of their gardens uh, as, you know, perennials. You know, they, they do need to be divided and they're much happier. And so a lot of the plants that come to it are donated and it's great because uh, those are the ones that are extremely successful because obviously they're thriving. They needed to be divided. Right. So we have that. And we also have volunteers who are starting tons and tons of seeds. And uh, it's a really great event. Now, last summer you had, what, what was the reading program for the kids called? What did you call that? So last summer we had Camp Read-A-Lot. Camp Read-A-Lot. So I was in here with my grandson and he saw, we got a badge for yes. every week of the uh, amount yep, of Yeah, we designed did. little merit badges. Yeah, ba that caught his attention. He said, oh, look, they're selling badges. And <laughs> the librarian who said, no, we're not selling them. You can earn them. Yeah. And so he did go on to earn all four badges for yep, the summer. That was so fun. I'm sure he'll be disappointed you're not doing that again this year, but you've got something else. Up I think sleeve. so. It's not totally set in stone yet, but I'm the idea I'm rattling around right now is maybe doing a reading regatta. And mm -hmm. um, I, you know, we'll see what our prize is again this <laughs> summer, but it may be something like little badges that um, spell out WHPL with like the signal flags. Right. Um, anyway, it's always fun to come up with something fun to keep the kids engaged in the summer in reading. And, and we just like, uh, you know, coming up with fun themes. Absolutely. All right. So a new addition to the library is the pollinator garden yes. behind the library. And that was just a tangle mess of, I don't know what, it ivy. Was and ivy, invasives, all sorts of, there were a couple thorny scraggly bushes, trees yeah. that needed to come down. And that's actually how the whole project started. We had a tree that was kind of a little too close to the library, needed to come down. And we were looking at that space and thinking, you know, this is just a bit of an eyesore and not good for the building and really not doing anything for anybody. Uh, and so we turned it into a really great pollinator friendly garden. It was um, designed by locals, Josh and Lauren Levesque. They came up with uh, all the plants and the design of the space. And now everything that's in there is uh, really attractive to bees and butterflies. And we have a nice seating area. So it's also attractive to our locals that can come and sit there and 
enjoy yeah. a little oasis. I think I told you this summer, a woman was walking by. She said, oh, there's a lovely park back there. <laughs> um, and it's almost like a secret garden. It right? is. And if it's amazing. Know. It's such a small place, but it feel it does feel like a park. And um, really, a, especially in the summer when Woods Hole just is busy, crazy busy, <laughs> it really feels like a little respite behind the library. And um we're just thrilled that we were able to turn, you know, just an unused space into something that, uh, you know, is is serving a purpose now, both for for our people to have another little place to go, but also the pollinators. Last yeah. summer, it was just completely humming with bees and we butterflies. We need those pollinators. Absolutely. We need, more, we need more pollinator gardens. Yes. All right, so you also have this unique relationship with the Woods Hole Historical Museum, right? Yes. So, so you're... Same 501c3, but right. separate budgets and... Yep. So we are, we are all under one umbrella. We, we've, you know, we have a, our campus here. So the museum is right next door. Um, and we, uh, they were founded under us as a steering committee in uh, the mid-70s in 1974 as a way to, you know, really manage like the archives and um, kind of break off that part of the the process for the library. Since we are so small and we're all part-time employees here, it really made sense to have that be a more specialized part of, of our operation. And here. there's so much history here Absolutely. In Woods Hole, and we are going to talk about that. We're live at the Woods Hole Library and coming up after break, we'll take a look at the Woods Hole Historical Museum. Stay with us. You're listening to The Point. We are live today at the beautiful Woods Hole Library. 866-999-4626 is our number. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning or to give a shout out to your favorite library, 866-999-4626, our email address, thepoint at capeandislands.org. Uh, with us is Kelly Porter, the director of the library, and also joining us, Sally Pacini. She's the executive director of the Woods Hole Historical Museum. Hi, Sally. Hi, Mindy. So for folks who aren't familiar with the Historical Museum, tell us a little bit about it. Well, as Kelly said, um, it was founded in 1974. The original library charter um, you know, called for the library to have a historical collection because, as you've said, this is a really remarkable place with a remarkable history. Um, and I think because it was a lead up to the bicentennial, um, people were really interested in making sure that that history was preserved. So um, we are celebrating our 50th anniversary. Uh, they actually had, were able to mount an exhibit in 1974. It was, was held at... Um, Hui, um, and uh, more than a thousand people came oh. to that exhibit, um, which really proved that there, uh, there was a lot of interest in the history of Woods Hole. And then in um, 1976, we um, formally opened our doors and began um, to have annual exhibits. We're open um, from mid-June to early October. And because this is such an international community in the summer, we get visitors from all over the world, which is it's just wonderful to look at our visitor logs and see, you know, people from Finland and Taiwan and, and all of that. And um, we love showing them the history of, of this. Yeah, and I, I, it's the science reputation, right? That yes. draws a lot of people yes, here, wanting yes, to see. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Tell us a little bit about the, the Bradley House, right? That's one of the oldest in Woods Hole? Yes, and we just had um, 
something called a historic structures report done and it was funded by the town of Falmouth for which we're, we're very grateful and um, that really delved into the history of the Bradley House and we had believed it was built in 1804 circa 1804 and now we're not sure it might have been built a little bit later than that but it was um, built for a ship captain um, William Bradley and he was lost at sea in 1827 and um, his wife uh, had lost four of her five children in infancy. So it, it's such a reminder that life was really difficult <laughs> um, yeah. a century ago. Um, so she she lived there with her one remaining son, William Bradley. Um, and, um, you know, over the years it was, uh, was used as a, you know, um, we had tenants there and, and stuff, and then the library was able to to um, purchase it and save it from being demolished. It, the interesting thing about it is, you know, uh, there's a real history of moving houses on the Cape, and so that um, Bradley House was moved a little bit down the road, <laughs> and then it was turned around. It was rotated so that the front door is now facing the side. Um, yeah. Uh, which is really interesting. It, it's and uh, so many of these houses have stories, right? There's these old houses, and you know the house <coughs> that we are that's that CAI is in. We knew it as the Captain Davis house, right? So we assumed, well, it must have been a sea captain, right? So for years we're going, yeah, Captain Davis, sea captain. Well, it turns out he wasn't a sea captain. He was a Civil War veteran. That was Henry Davis. But the Davis house was built in the 1840s for Thomas Davis, who was Henry's father. But uh, Henry opened a butcher shop and grocery store in the 1870s, which, which was operated until he died in 1902. And same, that building has served many purposes. It was apartments for local scientists. It was a home for the Falmouth Fire Chief. Uh, and I'm sure many will remember the job shop, which was <laughs> founded in the 1960s. When CAI moved in in 2000, we still had people coming in going, isn't this the job shop? You know, so so um, CAI moved in in 2000, uh, bought the building in 2009, and renovated it in 2010. So a little bit of history of, uh, of next door, right? But a lot of these houses have long histories, right? They do, yes. Do we know which one is the oldest? Because I know we had that big fire in yeah. Barcelona that destroyed a lot of county I, records. I don't believe that we know which is the oldest, but I, I will check on that yeah. with our great archivist, Colleen Herder. And while I have the opportunity, I do want to give a shout out to um, Jennifer Gaines, our original right. director, Debbie Scanlon, um, who took her place, and Susan Witzel, who was a longtime archivist and was really just amazing in terms of, of how she organized the archives. All right, so tell us about some of the highlights that you have in the archives. Well, I, you know, it, I like to think of it as a repository of, of stories. And um, we've got everything from maps, we've got house plans, we have family letters, we have thousands of photographs, um, artwork. We're the repository for the Children's School of Science here, which is been around for a hundred years and and um, much beloved institution yeah. here and also the women's um, the Whistle Women's Club um, and we have oral histories um, about 500 oral histories and um, that's something that I would like to to um, get started again because there are a number of people here who's voices we want to capture yeah. um, and uh, just put in a plug for anybody who's interested in conducting oral histories 
please contact the museum. <laughs> Kelly, we were t- before we went on the air today, you were talking about that, some of the women who used to just come into the library. And yes, then- we did a project uh, ma- many years ago called Woods Hole Women of a Certain Age. <laughs> you can see that actually on the, uh, the museum's website. Uh, and we interviewed, uh, I believe it was women over the age of 75, and took a portrait of each of them. We had a, a photographer who volunteered to help with that and yeah, it's just amazing to capture their stories because many of them are no longer with us. Yeah, and as you were saying, you, these were just nice ladies who came into the library, and then you read <laughs> well, their bios. Well, that's how I knew them. And you were exactly. Like, wow, these are accomplished. <laughs> you know, women. I might have known the the mystery <laughs> authors they liked the best, but uh, of course, yes, they had a whole long storied history before that. Yeah. Um, one of the wonderful things that happened last summer when I had just first started my job, um, a woman came in from California and and she was um, a member of a pretty well-known family here in Woods Hole, but she was estranged from her family and her family history. And we had um, her grandmother's oral history and it was the first time she had heard her grandmother's voice. And it was such a meaningful moment and made me realize just how important um, our holdings are here. Oh, for sure. Yeah, those oral histories are like gold. So um, I know you mentioned the photos. You have loads and loads of photos. Mm-hmm. Do people donate them? I, I know you get a lot of requests. People come in and you see them on some of the, like, on the walls in the restaurants and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. And we have a, a, a committee that decides, you know, what, what we're going to take. And, and, you know, I, obviously we're, our space is limited and mm-hmm. we've actually had to move some things out to, to storage. But um, we, you know, we decide what's what's really important or what you know maybe the Falmouth Historical Society would prefer to have mm-hmm. something like that so um, I did want to mention one really fun thing that we have in um, in our collection which is a piece of guano ah, <laughs> from the guano factory, the guano oh, that's factory. Um, it was donated by speaking of amazing what's all women um, Olive Kroll Beverly who passed away just a few years ago and she was 104 years old and she continued to volunteer at the museum I think up until probably she was almost 100 (laughs) yes um (laughs) and um so she was a descendant of the of Prince Coral who started the guano factory here in Woods Hole and I, I just the history is so interesting that they and it you know shows the global reach of what's all even before the scientific institutions were started that they were you know these ships were coming from South America with guano and then they'd mix it with menhaden that was caught here and that started the whole fishing commercial fishing industry and you know the fish market that was here until the 1960s yeah when was when was the guano factory it was um between uh it was like in the mid 1900s and um the sort of curious thing was that um well first of all they ran out of guano because they 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 over harvested the the guano um and so they started using um different ingredients and so that was it was guano less but um which is probably better because it didn't smell quite as bad (laughs) but anyway it it went bankrupt i think in 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 the 18 70s um and nobody really knows why um they think maybe the treasurer mishandled Mm -hmm. funds but that was the end of 
end of the guano factory and the the funny thing is for for people who don't know Woods Hole you know there was it really would look like a factory I mean you know with most accident was spewing out this noxious fumes and then um it was torn down the only remnants are just so you can see where the dock was there's a stone wall but the place where it is now is called Penzance Point. It was Which renamed. is a lot of very expensive homes. Yes. Yeah. So it, it sits on, and their, their lawns are very green. <laughs> because that guano lasts a long time. Right, yeah. right, right. That's funny. Um, it has, do you have much in the archives that's been digitized? Like we talked about the MBL Hui Library. Yes, yes. We've uh, digitized a majority of the, of the collection. So it's searchable. And um, if anybody's interested in um, researching um, local history, um, you can go online or you can contact our archivist, Colleen right. Herter. So we mentioned how um, the library and the museum share the same 501c3 mm -hmm. designation, but you're separate as far as budgets and you have to raise money too, right? Yes, we do so indeed. So this is, as you mentioned, you're celebrating the 50th year. You got a cookbook coming out in June. We have a cookbook coming out and we're so excited about it. Um, the museum had done two previous cookbooks. The first, the first one actually was in 1975 and it helped to fund renovations to Bradley wow. House. Yeah. And then um, the second was, one was in 2002. Um, and so it seemed like a really appropriate thing to do for our 50th anniversary. And the most wonderful thing about it is that it's a community project. So, you know, we put out a call for recipes about a year ago um, now, and, you know, the response was really overwhelming. And the recipes are are wonderful because they're so eclectic. You know, naturally there's a lot of seafood, wonderful desserts, Kelly's famous cheese <laughs> The hit of biscuits, every potluck. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just have to, to one one recipe that I, I just think is it was so funny. Um, it was sent in by uh, uh, Dan Eisenberg. It was it's for a salt encrusted. You can you can use the use like striper or bluefish and um he first had it in istanbul or something the list of ingredients ends with a hammer <laughs> <laughs> um because it's it, you actually make this concoction with salt that's sort of like oh, cement so by the time the thing is is cooked <laughs> you have to use a hammer to break it open but um it, we've in addition to the recipes um we've taken a lot of um photos and other items from our archives um, that are food related. So, mm -hmm. you know, the famous Mayflower spoon, um, yeah. you know, pictures of salt, early salt works, things like that. And then also um, contributions from local artists. So Julie Child, um, who was, you know, just such a beloved scientific illustrator mm -hmm. and um, her, her drawings are exquisite. And Tessa Morgan, who, um, runs the Flying Pig Pottery, and she, she illustrated some recipes beautifully. And um, the designer of the cookbook, um, Barbara Whitehead, is a, also a beautiful artist, and many of her um, illustrations are a in the cookbook. And then you also have a couple of uh, annual, you have the, the oyster tasting in August, yes. right? So mm -hmm. that's sort of a... You talk about shellfishing and you get to taste it too. Is that how that would? would yes. What's What's great is that this um, this fellow named Pete Chase, who um, is a oyster farmer, um, and he also works for Noah Fisheries, but um, he and his colleagues come and they talk about the process of oyster aquaculture, and people are just find it really fascinating. Last 
last summer we had to to actually stop it or you know because it was going on so long and people wanted to taste the oysters but there were so <laughs> many questions that uh. you know we, we we wanted to make sure people had their questions answered so um so he talks about that and then they provide the oysters and we get a bunch of people who can shock them and and oh, people just taste them and we've water street kitchen who's a great restaurant yeah. here donates um you know, like last year they donated a watermelon mignonette to oh, go wow. with the oysters oh, that's fun. um tell us about the small boat museum that is a great um, addition to the museum um, in um, about, let's see, it was in the mid-90s. We um, received from Huey um, the Swift Barn, which was built by a carpenter um, in the uh, 1870s, um, Ezekiel Swift. And that houses um, our collection of small boats that are really part of integral part of Woods Hole history, um, which include the Spritzel, which is kind of the iconic boat, a work boat um, that is was designed so that the mass can be, um, you know, brought down really quickly because before we had a drawbridge here, there was a stone bridge and you had to be able to go from our, our little harbor here, Eel Pond, under the bridge. So you needed to get hmm. your mast down and then back up again quickly. Um, and then we also have a, a Harrishoff, 12 and a half, and Harrishoff, um, you know, is a famous boat builder. And then a Cape Cod Knockabout, which is, is something that's um, familiar to, yeah. to a lot of people here on the Cape. And you have an exciting new acquisition coming from the steamship Nobska. Yes, we do. Um, I got a call um, la last fall, um, a woman who said, we have these remnants from the steamship Navska. And the, the Navska, I'm sure a lot of, of older folks remember, um, it was in service from 1925 to 1973. And it was the oldest surviving coastal steamship. Um, and it was... Um, after it was decommissioned, it was put on the National Register um, because it was so significant a boat. But unfortunately, the group that was trying to save it um, couldn't for a variety of reasons, and it was scrapped mm. um, in 2006. But um, there was a, a man who, who was able to save a lot of the pieces of it. Um, including the engine, which is now being rebuilt um, oh. in Rhode Island at a the New England Wireless and Steam Museum, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a smaller version of the the um, engine that was used on the Titanic, which oh, is wow. so interesting. Um, but we are going to be getting um, the binnacle, which is the um, thing that stands on the deck and and um, houses the you know the compass and directional um, navigational equipment and then the the telegraph post which you if you've seen the movie titanic you'll know that it's the the thing that you know allows the the people um to communicate with the engine room and um on the ship's wheel um, oh ship's wheel that's exciting yes yeah. yes everybody likes to look at the ship's yeah, wheel yeah <laughs> so um we're hoping to get those in um later um in the spring so that they'll be ready for um display in yeah. the summer and then one other thing you, you also do something in the summer i see the there's always a boat in front of the it, it, what is the, the the boat building thing or or you have a boat that's raffled or something is that? <gasps> 
Um, what is that? Well, we, we have another part of our, our museum is we have a boat shop, and um, it's was started as a way to really preserve the um, tradition of wooden boat building here. And what's wonderful about it, so they, they built, these, these guys in this tiny little shop, they build these beautiful, beautiful They're really good boats. looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've just finished one that was built by a, um, a high school student. Mm, um, wow. And what's, so what's great about the boat shop is it, it, it really attracts um, people of all ages. And um, they've started doing um, some courses. They, they did a what they called a half hull carving course in the in the um, fall here at the library. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, another great thing about it is that it um, attracts women, which is mm-hmm. important to to, um, to have them included in that. Um, and and we were very pleased that the class was half, you know, was was half women. So, so much going yeah. on here. So yeah. we're, we're going to have a link to the Woods Hole and the MBL Huey Libraries and the Woods Hole Historical Museum at our website capeandislands.org. Kelly Porter is the library director and Sally Pacini is the museum director. Thanks for having us Thanks this morning. Thanks so much Thank for coming, so Mindy. Much. It was bye, didn't it? Thank I'm, you. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening. Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Jenny Junker and Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter.